The invitational style of evangelism is best personified by the woman who said, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could he be the Christ? Today we continue our six-part sermon series entitled Evangelism, whereby we have been examining six different styles or methods of presenting the good news of Jesus Christ to a dead and dying world. Today I invite you to draw your sword, take your Bible, turn to John chapter 4. Focus your attention upon this woman's story. And once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. This morning I want to read in your hearing John chapter 4 beginning at verse 4 and concluding at verse 42. John chapter 4 verse 4. Now he being Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she said. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will Worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. His worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes... He'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town. They made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat you do not know. 
you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, well, could, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me, to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look into the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows, another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap where you have not, what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. This is the word of God. May God be praised. You may be seated. It was a sweltering summer day. John tells us in our opening line that he, being Jesus, had to go through Samaria. The statement jumps off the page. The reason it jumps off the page is because nearly every Jew would tell you he did not have to go to Samaria. Samaria was the land that was sandwiched between Galilee to the north, Judea to the south. For most devout Jews, they would go out of their way to avoid Samaritan territory. It was because of deep-seated animosity that Jews would go well beyond mile after mile as to not step one foot in Samaritan soil. This deep-seated hatred was from Jew to Samaritan, from Samaritan to Jew. It was worse than the Hatfield and the McCoys. I mean, these guys despised each other. Their hatred dated back some 700 years. In the year 722 BC, the Assyrian army came and invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. The Assyrians totally destroyed Israel. They deported many of the Israelite men. The Assyrian men stayed in the Holy Land. They married Israelite women. The children that were produced were children that had a flair of Judaism, but mostly they were taught the pagan traditions of Assyria. To a devout Jew, these children of Assyrian men and Israelite women they were regarded as impure half-breeds. You don't even need to give them the time of day. History calls them Samaritans. And Jews hated Samaritans. In fact, if you were called a Samaritan by a Jew, that was not a term of endearment. That was one of the most derogatory things anybody could say of you. In fact, people said of Jesus, not only are you demon-possessed, but you're also a Samaritan. A Samaritan title was worse than even being demon-possessed. So Jews and Samaritans 
hated each other. They would go out of their way to avoid one another. Yet the opening line of our passage says that he being Jesus had to go through Samaria. Jesus is obsessed with obedience. Jesus is passionate about people. It's because of his obsession, it's because of his passion that he had to go through Samaria. He came to the little town called Sakar. Sakar was a small town where everybody knew everybody else's business. It was located on the plot of land that Jacob had given his beloved son Joseph. Jacob's well was located right there on the outskirts of Sakar. By the time Jesus and the disciples got there, it was high noon, for the text tells us it was the sixth hour. And Jesus was fatigued from the journey. So he rested there at the well, told the disciples, go into town, buy some lunch, and bring it back. No sooner had they left, a Samaritan woman came to that well to draw water. What makes this so astounding is that she's coming in the heat of the day. She's coming at high noon. Normally, women would come and draw water either early in the morning or late in the evening when the temperatures were cooler. But not only was this woman coming at an odd time, but she was traveling in an odd way. She was traveling by herself. Most days, women would group together. They would go out to do those morning chores of them One of them was to go get some water for the day. And as they would travel together, they would talk. They would talk about the latest news, the latest gossip around town. After all, the number one thing that people like to talk about, other people. And so if you have the opportunity to talk about other people, great. And this was the time of day when most women would go to the well. uh, They would go early in the morning. They would be in a group. They would talk about other people living in Sakaar and other things that were happening with families and children and marriages that were going on there in the village of Sakaar. But on this day, this woman travels at an odd time. It's high noon. She travels in an odd way. She's all by herself. If you look closer at this woman, it appears that she is carrying the weight of the world on her shoulders. Her forehead is wrinkled. Her eyebrows are furrowed. Her eyes don't dance and dart. They have no sparkle. Her skin doesn't glow. Her hair is disheveled. Her skin is dull. Her stride is sluggish. Her countenance is distressed. She's gazing down at the dirt as she is shuffling her way to the well. As I visualize this story, I I see Jesus as he's seated at the well, facing in the other direction. When this woman finally looks up and notices that someone's there, and not just anybody, but it's a a man. And this man is, is a Jewish man. She can tell by his attire that he's a Jewish rabbi. When she looks up and sees a dude sitting there, she gets all nervous. Her palms start sweating. Her stomach starts churning. She starts looking for the closest exit route. She never bumps into anybody at high noon. She thinks to herself, if I could just quickly, quietly get my water, get back to town, maybe he won't even notice. 
No sooner had she began to lower the bucket into that deep well, Jesus broke the silence. Will you give me something to drink? Now this is odd. It is odd for this conversation to take place. Reason being is because not only is he a Jew and she's a Samaritan, but he's a man and she's a woman. It's a cultural faux pas in the first century for men to talk to women in public. And Jesus initiates the conversation. Hey, friend, Jesus always initiates the conversation. He's always the one who starts it. Jesus broke the silence. He said to this woman, will you give me something to drink? She looked at him and said, sir, you have nothing to draw with. How? What, 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 uh, she, he said, will you please give me something to drink? And, and she said, sir, why, why are you talking to me? I mean, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Why are you talking to me? And Jesus said, if you knew who was speaking to you, you would ask him for a drink. And he would give you a drink of living water. That's when she said, but sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is over 100 feet deep. Everybody knows this. How are you going to get this living water? And Jesus said, you drink this water, you'll get thirsty again. You drink the living water I can give you, you will never thirst. The water that I give will spring up inside of you, a well to eternal life. That two-word phrase, eternal life, is significant in John's gospel. In fact, this is not the first time we've heard it in John's gospel. It won't be the last time you read it in John's gospel either. On 17 occasions... John has somebody speaking about eternal life. There are only 21 chapters in the book. Nearly every chapter has something to say about eternal life. Jesus is communicating to this woman, Jesus is communicating to anyone who will listen, that eternal life is found and bound in him. Life without end. Life that is everlasting. Life that is Surrounded with peace that passes all understanding. Life that is complete satisfaction can only be found in knowing Jesus. It's not enough just to know God in order to have eternal life. But you've got to know Jesus Christ. Have a personal relationship with him. And when you enter into that personal relationship, then you are granted that eternal life. Jesus is telling us that life does not consist of the things you put in your stomach doesn't consist of the things you put in your bank account. It doesn't consist of the things you put in your garage or put into your attic or put into your 401k account. Life is so much more than all of that. And only Jesus can give you life eternal, life everlasting, life of significance. This woman says, sir, give me this water. I mean, you're speaking a language that obviously I need. I, I need this water. I, I need this living water. I need this eternal life. Lord, give me this water. She is on the brink of salvation. I mean, all Jesus has to do is sing the first stanza of Just As I Am, and she'll come running down the aisle. 
I mean, she's ready to give her life to the Lord. Give me this water so I'll never thirst again. Give me this water so I won't have to keep on coming back to this well over and over and over again. She's beginning to understand that Jesus is talking about more than just physical H2O. He's talking about spiritual H2O. He's saying he can satisfy the deepest dehydration of her life. And she's saying, sir, give me this water. If I don't have to come out here where I thought nobody would be at noon in the heat of the day, if I can avoid doing all of this, if you can give me contentment and wholeness and satisfaction in life, give me this water. She's on the brink of salvation. She's ready to surrender it all to Jesus. She doesn't know what this living water is gonna look like, smell like, taste like, or cost. And she says, I'm all in. I'm ready. You give me this water. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says to her, go call your husband. You read that and you think to yourself, where does this come from? Nobody said anything about a husband. As you read the story, we don't know that she has a husband. Why does Jesus bring up a husband? Jesus, don't get distracted here. Stay on point. I mean, this woman is about to give her life to you. She's about to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Once she's signed, sealed, and delivered, then, then we can go talk about a husband. But why are you bringing up a husband? Who even knows about the husband? When she hears the words, go call your husband, her eyes that at one time were locked on Jesus quickly darted to the ground. She kicked the sand, and she said, Sir, um, I have no husband. Awkward. Have you ever been in those conversations? Awkward. You know, you kind of feel like you opened your mouth and inserted not one foot, but both of them. Awkward. I mean, Jesus said, go call your husband, and she responds, I have no husband. You ever had those conversations? You go up to that woman, and let's be honest, she's added a few pounds, all right? And innocently, you ask her, what's the due date? And she looks at you, and she says, I'm not pregnant. Awkward. How do you get out of that conversation? Well, darling, you look like you are. I mean, praise the Lord. I'm praying for you. I mean, what do you say? How do you back out of that? Do you ever borrow other people's embarrassment? You hear the conversation that they're having, and you get embarrassed for them? When I read this story, as I read through it initially, I get embarrassed for Jesus. Jesus said, go, call your husband. And she says, I have no husband. And I think to myself, ouch. I mean, Jesus, I'm embarrassed for you. Why did you bring up the husband? You expect Jesus, the Christ of compassion, to back off of this. But he doesn't back off. No, no, he doubles down. He says to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and this sixth guy that you're shacking up with, he ain't your husband, is he, either? Mm-hmm, sister. And you read that, and you think to yourself, Jesus, what are you doing? What are you doing? I mean, 
Has the heat made you cranky? Are you so hungry that you're hangry? I mean, Jesus, what's going on? Why are you saying this? And I think the answer is that Jesus needs this woman to acknowledge the depth of her thirst. She knows she's thirsty. But I don't know that she knows just how thirsty she is. Every person I've ever met is broken and sinful. And Jesus came to earth to heal the broken and to save sinners. This woman in this story is broken and she's trying to mend herself. This woman is a sinner and she's trying to save herself. The woman of John chapter 4 is not the exception. She's the norm. She's just like you. She's just like me. Broken people trying to mend their own brokenness. Sinners trying to save themselves. For this woman, she was trying to mend her brokenness through the central embrace of another man. She was hoping, believing, and trusting that somehow that man would swoop in and be her savior. But every time, it was dashed in disappointment. Every time, the central embrace was empty. The relationship here today, gone tomorrow. And she would go from one broken relationship to another broken relationship to another broken relationship. And there are people today who do the very same thing. People who acknowledge that they're broken, they want to mend themselves. People acknowledge that they're sinners and they want to save themselves. And the way some people do it today is the very same way that this woman attempted to do it. They try to do it through sexual promiscuity. They think to themselves, this will make me whole. This will make me healthy. This will make me feel loved and important and valuable and worthwhile. And this embrace will, it, it will, it will give me everything that I'm asking for and longing for. But it's empty, isn't it? It doesn't satisfy, does it? Some people don't use sensual uh, embrace. Some just use materialism. People think to themselves, you know what? I know that I'm broken. I know that I'm sinful. I need to mend myself. I need to save myself. So I will stuff my life with all the greatest stuff in this world. And all of the stuff that I stuff in my life will satisfy but you have more today than you've ever had. And it doesn't really satisfy very long, does it? Other people try to mask and mend their brokenness and save their sinfulness through alcohol. They think to themselves, this bottle will help numb my pain. And, and how I feel after I have taken this bottle or these bottles and, and, and how I feel after all that. I no longer feel pain any longer. I no longer feel the discomfort. I kind of like the way I feel after, after that drink. But that drink wears off, doesn't it? And the reality is that the pain becomes deeper and the scars become harsher. 
Some people say, you know, as long as I have success, success will help me feel satisfied and content in life. As long as I can climb the corporate ladder, if I can get the corner office, if, if I can get that house, if I can drive that car, if I can have that picture-perfect family, if I can have more of that stuff, if I can just be successful, if I can have fame and fortune, if I can have respect, if I can have accolades, if I can have achievement, then all of that will equate to my feeling of contentment. Have you ever fallen into that trap? I'm thinking all I need is just a little bit more. If I just had a little bit more, then I'd be happy. Whatever that little bit more is, it could be another $100 a month. It could be another $1,000 a month. It could be another $5,000 a month. And you think to yourself, if I just had that, I would be happy. I'd be satisfied. I'd be content. I'd be mended. And sometimes you get that extra $100 a month, don't you? And the month comes and the month goes. What happens? Well, you feel just as worthless as you did before. I mean, it was fleeting fun, but it was still fleeting. It was here today and it was gone tomorrow. What Jesus wants this woman to acknowledge is that whenever you try to deal with a spiritual need in a worldly way, the worldly way will always wear out. The worldly way will always wear out. This woman was thirsty. She was parched. She had been trying to mend herself. She'd been trying to save herself through the embrace of another person. And we come to this part of the story and we think to ourselves, Jesus, why are you bringing up the broken relationships and the shattered homes and the immorality and the illicit affairs? And the reason is he needs her to acknowledge just how thirsty she truly is. Go call your husband. I. I don't have one. You're right. You've had five. The sixth guy you're currently with, he's not your husband either. What you've said is exactly true. Now Jesus got a little too personal. What do you do when Jesus gets too personal for you? He makes you uncomfortable, right? He, he, he says things that are, that, are, that are kind of unnerving and unhinging. What do you do when Jesus gets too close and too personal? You change the subject. That's what this woman does. She changes the subject to a hot-button issue of that day between Jews and Samaritans. The, the question was, what is the proper place of worship? The Jews said in Jerusalem, Samaritans said on this mountain. What say you? What is the proper place of worship? Friends, we oftentimes waste far too much time talking about, talking about the hot-button issues of our day those hot-button cultural issues that we throw at people really just to kind of divert the attention because things are making us a little uncomfortable. That's what this woman does. And Jesus says, well, I mean, we can go there if you want to, but listen, you Jews worship what you don't know. We, uh, you Samaritans, worship what you don't know. We Jews, we worship what we do know. For salvation comes from the Jews. There's coming a day when worshiping, whether on this mountain or in Jerusalem, doesn't matter. A day is coming when God will demand worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. That's the kind of worshipers my father seeks. God is spirit and he desires worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. To say in spirit means with all passion. To say in truth means with doctrine 
doctrinal soundness. We are to worship God with everything that's inside of us and we are to be biblically accurate when we do worship. Here, Jesus just simply says, God desires worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. She says, I can tell by your answer that you're a prophet, you're smart, you're educated. Um, but you know, when Christ called the Messiah comes, he'll explain all this. You and I, we can differ, we can disagree, we can debate this. Uh, you and I can have conversations about it. I'm sure that as she's talking, she's trying to backpedal and back away from the conversation. And she's saying, look, look when, when Messiah comes, he'll explain all of this. And Jesus said, I, who am speaking to you, am he. That stopped her dead in her tracks. She nearly tripped over her water bucket. It's at this moment that her heart is pierced. Wait a minute. Could this be the Christ? I mean, he's told me everything I've ever done. He's looked at me with eyes of compassion, even though they were confrontational he it's as if he's giving me that eternal life living water i feel something welling up inside of me could could this be the christ he says he is could he be the christ whatever was going on inside of her prompted her to immediately run back to the village she ran as fast as her floozy flip-flops would carry her. She ran as quickly as she possibly could to the village people, not the YMCA, but the ones living in Sakar. She ran as fast as she could to those people living in that village, and she said, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could he be the Christ? Right before she left, the disciples came back with lunch, or at least lunch for them, and for the first time, like ever in ministry, they didn't open up their mouth and insert their foot. When they saw that Jesus was talking publicly to a woman, that Jesus, a Jew, was speaking to a Samaritan woman, not a one of them said, what's he talking to her for? What, what's going on here? What's happening? Jesus, this ain't right. You ain't supposed to talk to no women, not in public. For once, they didn't say anything. And they wondered, did somebody bring him something to eat? And Jesus said, look, guys, my food is to do the will of the Father, the will of him who sent me. I will finish his work. Don't miss that statement. Here, as early as John chapter 4, in, in John's gospel, we hear on the lips of Jesus that he will finish the work of the Father. It is only in John's gospel, when you get to the crucifixion, that Jesus declares, it is finished. To tell us, Ty, that what he started even before John chapter 4, but we find it illustrated here in John chapter 4, it won't find its fulfillment until the cross of Calvary when Jesus will pay the sin debt that we cannot pay, that he doesn't owe, so that we can be forgiven of our sin, and he will pay it completely and fully. He will satisfy all the longing, all the thirsting of our life, and we will find contentment in Christ at Calvary, and he will declare, it is finished. He says to his disciples, you say four months more and then the harvest. I say, look around. 
Now is the harvest. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day when the broken are mended. Now is the day when the sinners are saved. Now is the day when the addict gets released. Now is the day when the marriage gets rebuilt. Now is the day when the prodigal comes home. Now is the day when God moves in a mighty way. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of the harvest. The woman finally got back. She told all the people living in the village what had happened. She said, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. At that moment, everybody started to laugh. They said, we live in Sakaar. Anybody can tell you everything you've you've ever done. Everybody knows your story. She said, no, no, no. This is different. Could this man be the Christ? I think he is. I want you to come and check it out for yourself. I'm just inviting you to come and see. I think this man is Messiah. I think he is the Christ. Could he be your Christ? She was so convincing that the people left. They went out to the well. They listened to Jesus. They were so impressed with Jesus. Check this out. A group of Samaritans asked a Jewish rabbi to stay and teach longer. A Jewish rabbi said to a group of Samaritans, I'll stay, I'll preach, I'll teach. He stayed for two more days, held a two-day revival. Many people came to faith in Jesus, not only because of this woman's testimony, he told me everything I've ever done, but they eventually came to her and said, look, we believe because we've heard his word from his lips. And surely this man is the savior of the world. Not just the Savior of Jews. Not just the Savior of Jews and Samaritans. Not just the Savior of Jews and Samaritans and some Gentiles. But we believe this man is the Savior of the world. How did they get to that point? Because this woman simply invited them, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could he be the Christ? What an awesome story about invitational evangelism. My time is up. I need to give you four statements. I'm going to do it fast. Four statements of what invitational evangelism looks like. First one is this. Invitational evangelism begins with the conviction that Jesus can quench your thirst. The only way this woman went back to her village and told her friends about Jesus is that she got convinced that Jesus could quench her thirst. Thirst is a powerful motivator. We thirst for success. We thirst for accolades. We thirst for fame and fortune. We thirst for significance. And Jesus and only Jesus can quench our deepest thirst. Oh, we try to mask it with other things of this world, but the things of this world wear out. And if you're going to do invitational evangelism, it begins with the conviction that Jesus can quench your deepest thirst. Secondly, invitational evangelism believes that God uses broken, sinful people to tell other broken, sinful people 
about Jesus. I made the statement that every person I meet is broken. Every person I meet is sinful. Now, a lot of people try to mend their own brokenness and they try to save themselves from their own sin. But the only thing God has to work with are broken, sinful people. And I, for one, am a broken, sinful person, but I'm a saved, broken, sinful person. And invitational evangelism believes that God uses broken, sinful people to tell other broken, sinful people that Jesus is the Savior. This woman did that to such a degree that they concluded he is the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of the cosmos. In John chapter 3, for God so loved the cosmos, God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Third statement. Invitational evangelism is convinced that Jesus can meet any need of any person at any time. Convinced. That Jesus can meet any need of any person at any time. John is a masterful storyteller. He puts John chapter 4, obviously, right after John chapter 3. And in John chapter 3, he tells the story of Nicodemus. And in John chapter 4, he tells the story of the Samaritan woman. If you compare and contrast Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, Nicodemus is noble. The Samaritan woman is nasty. Nicodemus is a moral man. The Samaritan woman is a mess. Nicodemus is a male. The Samaritan is a female. Regardless of whether you think of yourself as noble or nasty, whether you think of yourself as moral or a hot mess, whether you think of yourself as male or female, regardless of who you are, my Jesus can meet any need of any person at any time. And the reason being is because he is God in the flesh. God loved the world so much that he gave Jesus to be our Savior. He gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Friends, invitational evangelism believes that Jesus can meet any need of any person at any time. Let me give you the fourth statement. The fourth and final statement is an invitational Evangelism is obsessed with obedience. This woman immediately ran back to town and told people, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could he be the Christ? Here's my question. Who told her to do that? Who told her, go to town and tell everybody, come check out Jesus? According to the story, nobody told her. It was something that, check this out, welled up inside of her. Like, oh, I don't know, a spring of eternal life. It, it, it was something that welled up inside of her by the power of the Holy Spirit where she said, I'm going to bust if I don't go tell somebody. I've got to go tell somebody. Like Peter and John, this woman had a bad case that can't help us. I just can't help but to speak about what I've seen and heard. This Jesus, this Jesus, he's my Christ. He could be your Christ. Come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could he be the Christ? This woman was so eager. Why? Because she was obsessed with obedience. Friends, you will speak most eagerly about that which you love 
most passionately. You will speak most eagerly about that which you love most passionately. Grandparents, do you love your grandchildren? That's a stupid question, isn't it? Of course you do. Uh, Let me ask you this. Grandparents, who taught you how to brag on your grandchildren? Who taught you and told you that at any moment you always need to have a picture or more than one picture of your darling grandchildren on your phone at all times, ready to share it with anybody, whether they ask for it or don't ask for it? Who, who taught you how to talk so, so abundantly about your grandchildren? And the answer is no one. You didn't go to any training class on how to brag on your grandchildren. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not minimizing training. I think that we need to be trained when it comes to evangelism. But at the heart of it, we, we speak most eagerly about that which we love most passionately. Do you love Jesus? If you do, you can't help but to speak about him. If you love Jesus, it'll be obvious in your lips and your life. It'll be obvious in your walk and your talk. Why was this woman so obsessed about Jesus? The answer, because he was obsessed with her. We become obsessed over the one who's most obsessed over us. Remember I told you at the very beginning he had to go through Samaria? Because Jesus was passionate about people. He was obsessed about obedience. He desperately wanted to obey the will of the Father. The Father told him, on this day, I want you to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. This woman is obsessed about obedience because Jesus was obsessed about her. Jesus traveled that way on that day for that person in Samaria. And Jesus has traveled this day, this way on this day, for this person in this sanctuary. Friend, I want you to know that Jesus makes special trips to special places to save special people one person at a time. Jesus makes special trips to special places to save special people one person at a time. Jesus is obsessed with your salvation. And when you get saved, the evidence of your salvation is that you become obsessed over the one who's obsessed with you. St. Augustine said it this way, God thirsts to be thirsted after. God longs for you, and he longs for you to long for him. God thirsts after those who thirst after him. God thirsts to be thirsted after. So this woman, she may not know the song, but she would echo the words. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. This woman was trying to quench her dehydration with drinking sand of the culture and it left her even more parched until she met Jesus and Jesus changed everything from the inside out and because of that she was compelled she was forced she was obligated she was obsessed with going back into her hometown 
saying, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. I believe he's the Christ. Friends, what she said to her people, I say to my people today, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. I'm telling you, he's the Christ. If you've never trusted him, today can be the day of your salvation. If you have trusted him, but you've never told anybody about him because you're scared to death, today is the day for you to come and pray and say, God, strengthen me. Maybe today you need to pray for a family member, a friend, a prodigal who's in a far country, but you know, hey, Lord, you have saved me and you've commissioned me to invite that person to come and trust you. Maybe you need to come and join the church. Maybe you need to accept the call to full-time Christian ministry, whatever it is. I pray you do it at this moment. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this invitation. Lord, you have invited us to follow you. Help us to follow you wholeheartedly. Whatever you're saying, whatever you're doing, let us follow you in spirit and in truth. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.